1: To get started,
0: visit plushcare.com slash That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, better get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. sold. give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Today's topic is one that will probably be of interest to everyone for the simple reason that everyone does it. I'm talking about sleep, something that quite a few people at some stage of their life worry about. Are they sleeping deeply enough? Are they sleeping long enough or even too much? These are matters which have been researched by Professor Dirk jan Dijk, Professor of Sleep and Physiology at the University of Surrey and Director of the Surrey Sleep Research Centre. Now, his current research interests include the contribution of sleep to brain function, uh, the role of circadian rhythms in sleep regulation, the negative effects of sleep loss and understanding age and sex-related differences in sleep physiology, and he's developing tests as well to monitor sleep a very basic aspect of of the field. So, Professor, welcome. Thank you. And let's begin with the the, the basic uh, sort of underlying idea of all of this crucial concept, the circadian rhythm. What exactly is it?
2: Ah, a circadian rhythm. It's pretty clear that organisms evolved in in a periodic environment. After all, the earth rotates around its axis and Furthermore, the the Earth also uh, rotates around the sun. And and these uh, rotations are associated with changes in the environment. Obviously, it's dark at night and light during the day. Uh, It's colder during the night uh, compared to the day. Uh, And that means that if organisms want to function optimally and make use and anticipate these changes in the environment, Um, maybe it's good for them to have an internal clock that tells them how many more minutes to go before the sun uh, rises. Uh, And these um, internal clocks are present in almost all living systems. It's easy to understand that if you are a plant and you're doing photosynthesis, that's a good idea to have your leaves up during the day to catch as much light as possible when it's dark Why keep your leaves up and why not just put them down? And plants and animals and other organisms indeed have evolved internal mechanisms that generate time. And these periodic changes in their physiology and biochemistry helps them to um, be prepared for changes in the environment and function optimally.
1: And just listening to you, there, it just occurred to me, is the circadian rhythm the same across all cultures, human cultures? You say different uh, species and so on have, have it, but amongst humans, is it precisely the same amongst all humans?
2: So characteristics of those circadian rhythms are, for example, the endogenous frequency or the endogenous period. When we study humans or other organisms in constant conditions so in constant darkness or in constant light uh, we can observe that these clocks aren't precise in the sense that the period isn't exactly 24 uh, hours in most humans that intrinsic period is slightly longer than 24 hours but that aspect of circadian rhythmicity is present uh, in all cultures of course there are differences in sleep timing uh, in in the sense that in some cultures people may get up slightly earlier than in other cultures but humans are diurnal animals and humans will be mostly active during the daytime in all cultures
1: I'd like to ask you if I can about the nature of sleep through a life cycle if you like so just uh, starting with babies and, and and ending up with you know something you've studied elderly people so uh Let's start with babies. Babies need lots of sleep,
2: right? Babies sleep a lot. They may sleep up to 16 or 18 hours. And, and the question is why do babies sleep so much or why does sleep change across the lifespan? As we grow older and we become toddlers and children, sleep duration uh, changes. And, and maybe a child aged 10 or 11 years old may sleep something like 10 or 11 hours. So that's already less but there is more to age related changes in sleep than just sleep duration uh, sleep can be subdivided in two different stages or two different states non-rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep and as the name says during rapid eye movement sleep there are rapid eye movements and these are absent during non-rem sleep but there are other differences between those stages but in in very young humans, there is a lot of rapid eye movement sleep Uh, and the contribution of that sleep state to total sleep time uh, becomes less as the brain um, matures.
1: If I asked you why uh, that that, that happens, that rapid eye movement sleep diminishes in in, in its duration, would you be able to answer that or don't we know?
2: Uh, I I think that uh, the hypothesis about the contribution to Rapid eye movement sleep is, in particular, in the context of brain uh, development. Um, The human brain isn't mature when we are born. Um, Many aspects of brain function and brain connections uh, still need to be developed. Um, And it is believed that rapid eye movement sleep plays a very important role there. In general, uh, one hypothesis about the function of sleep is it is important for brain plasticity. So it contributes to the brain being able to respond or change uh, in response to uh, waking experiences. Of course, a young brain uh, will receive a lot of new information. A young brain needs to learn an awful lot about its environment. A young brain also still needs to learn a lot about how the, the, the rest of the body connects to the brain, how to move your legs, and how to move your arms, and how to learn how to walk. Um, And for for this, there need to be extensive feedback mechanisms between your limbs and your brain. And rapid eye movement sleep, for example, um, is thought to be quite important for coordinating those kind of feedback mechanisms between the brain and, and the arms and the legs. So, so that is one reason uh, why we think there is so much REM sleep early on uh, in life and in general why there is so much sleep early on in life.
1: You mentioned 10 and 11-year-olds. Uh, getting on to teenagers, um, many parents will know it's difficult to get them out of bed in the morning. And the, you know, there, are, there are those who say bucket of cold water and there are those who say let them sleep. Uh, what what's the science of adolescence and their need for sleep?
2: That's a very uh, interesting and very relevant uh, area. In, in in the first instance, if we look at sleep physiology, I mentioned there is non-REM sleep and REM sleep. Within non-REM sleep, uh, one can distinguish between very deep non-REM sleep or slow wave sleep, and slightly lighter non-REM sleep or N2 sleep. Um, as we enter Uh, adolescence or puberty, we we see that there will be less of that very deep sleep. There will be fewer of these slow waves or their amplitude will reduce. And one may wonder, how is this reflected in changes within the brain? Uh, We know that um, during adolescence, puberty, there are quite impressive changes in the number of synapses, so the connections between the neurons in the brain. These reductions um, are occurring primarily during that particular period in development, uh, and that is associated with changes in uh, the amount of deep sleep you can observe when you do an electrophysiological recording of sleep. So it is clear that there are biological changes, neurophysiological changes, in the brain uh, during adolescence and uh, puberty. So that's one thing, but but that relates to the structure of sleep and not necessarily to the uh, timing of sleep. It is true uh, that in in all cultures uh, during this uh, period, later sleep is commonly observed. Um, This may actually have something to do with those changes in sleep structure Uh, but it is also often hypothesized that it has a lot to do with changes in those circadian rhythms it is true uh, that when we assess the the time of internal clocks they will drift a little bit uh, later during um, adolescence Uh, and yes it is difficult um, for those kids to get out of bed so yes there is a biological effect we believe, however, that those biological effects are very much um, exacerbated uh, by environmental factors. One good way to delay your clock or slow down your clock is by being exposed to light in the uh, evening. And obviously, it is true that certainly nowadays, um, adolescents like to be on their phone, have a lot of screen time. So we here see this interaction between the environment uh, and biological changes. Uh, and it's that interaction that is causes those extremely late sleep patterns um, in And Researchers have compared those changes in different cultures or in environments in which there was access to electric light and in environments where um, people didn't have access to electric light yet, and indeed you see that in those environments or in those cultures with uh, easy access to electric light that uh, those uh, delays in sleep timing um, are more pronounced uh, so th- that is uh, in essence what it's happening so it certainly isn't just uh, laziness but it's also not true that one cannot do anything about it
1: right so this is this is not a parenting uh, podcast, but you're you're from what I'm gathering, you're saying less screen time in the evening, and if if um, adolescents need a, a lion, they need a lion.
2: Um, and uh, yes, I think that is one a, a good way to um, go about it. It's important, I think, to point out that our understanding of how the light environment interacts with the biology in the in the regulation of sleep timing is is now so advanced that one can indeed. People have constructed mathematical models um, that can simulate those kind of changes and can predict the effects of um, interventions. In, in this context, there is uh, a lot of discussion about school start times and uh, shouldn't we start schools later? Obviously, it's not easy for an adolescent to get up before dawn to catch a school bus to be at school at 7.30 or 8 in the morning. So there is an argument for delaying school start time somewhat. um, But on the other hand, it doesn't seem to be very sensible to not start school until 11 o'clock in the morning, because then the children and the parents and the teachers would all be living on very different social schedules, which obviously has disadvantages as
1: well. Let's move on. We've talked about adolescence. Uh, As people get into middle age, uh it's often said you need eight hours some people say seven hours uh wh- wh- what's the story about middle age well how
2: much sleep do we need and when are we an adult and by when do we need eight hours uh, i teach students and now and then i ask them how long do you sleep and many people in their early 20s uh, will say that they sleep eight or nine hours so i think People in their 20s shouldn't believe that from a sleep perspective they are real grown-ups. They may still need a little bit more than eight hours of sleep. Um, By the time you're in your 30s, seven to eight hours is probably a healthy sleep duration. If one reads the epidemiology and looks at associations between sleep duration and health, or sleep duration and adverse health uh, outcomes, then a number of seven, seven and a half hours uh, often pops up. So rather than eight, seven and a half seems to be, when we look at the average adult middle-aged person, to be a good sleep duration.
1: And as people get older, they they tend to sleep less, I think. I mean, that's my anecdotal observation. Is is that true and and what's going on there?
2: Yes, uh, that is another... uh, important um, area. How much sleep do we need when we are older? What can I expect uh, in uh, about sleep? And, and for example, my daytime um, sleepiness. We, we looked into this quite extensively, and I, I can describe you an experiment where, you know, we take people in their 20s, tell them to be in bed for eight hours for a couple of weeks, and then we bring them to the laboratory. We do the same with people who are in their 60s and in the laboratory we record their overnight sleep. We observe that the older people have less deep sleep. Their sleep may be less uh, consolidated, less continuous, and more fragmented. And then uh, during the day, we ask the people to take a nap. Actually, we ask them to take five naps. Uh, And then we can measure how long it takes to fall asleep. This is called a multiple sleep latency test. And in a way, that is a gold standard for sleepiness. If, if you haven't slept, you obviously fall asleep very rapidly and your sleep latency is very short. Now, when you do these experiments in young and older people, um, you observe the following. The latencies to sleep onset during the daytime are much shorter in the younger people compared to the older people. Now, it's important to point out that these older people are really healthy older people. We screened them extensively. They have no diabetes or no cardiovascular disease. But those healthy older people are less sleepy during the day than the younger people, even though their sleep at night is less deep and their total sleep duration uh, is shorter. Uh, and and that suggests that uh, older people, indeed, may need less sleep and can be more alert. Now, one important implication of that finding is that older people should not expect to be sleepy during the day. If they are sleepy during the day, then this may be because they have a sleep disorder, like sleep apnea, where people stop breathing uh, repeatedly during the night. Or they have another medical condition. Daytime sleepiness is not a normal consequence of um, healthy aging. So that's one piece of data that suggests that older people need less sleep. And indeed, if you if you ask older people how long they sleep, uh, they, they will sleep slightly less than let's let's say a person in in their 30s. And one particular change is that they will wake up. Um, earlier in the morning. One can do other experiments to investigate those age-related changes in, in sleep need. One experiment we, we did quite a few years ago back in in Boston at the Harvard Medical School was we took younger people and older people uh, and <clears throat> after a few baseline nights, they were asked to stay in bed for 12 hours at night. Uh, And in addition to these 12 hours in bed at night, they were instructed to be in bed for four hours during the daytime, okay? And we did this for approximately a week. And now you can see how many hours of sleep younger and older people can get in a way one assesses the maximum capacity for sleep. Um, And that uh, maximum capacity of um, sleep was approximately... remember correctly, one and a half hours less in the older people compared to the younger people. So indeed, the need for sleep, or in this experiment, certainly the maximum capacity for sleep was very much reduced.
1: There are so many questions that uh, arise from what you're saying. I mean, I'm surprised it's only an hour and a half um, amongst older people, because observing elderly relatives, they seem to sleep four or five hours when they're getting really towards the end of their lives. But you're saying more normal would be, you know, six or something like that. But
2: remember, in the experiment I just described, people were instructed to be in bed for 16 hours out of 24 hours, which is somewhat different than the situation most older people will find themselves in. Uh, but nevertheless, there is this clear difference in, in sleep capacity. You, you can push it a little bit further and say, okay, if that is true, that older people need less sleep, are they then better at you know, pulling an all-nighter? What happens if you ask younger and older people to stay awake through the night into the next day and you now assess how they perform during uh, that sleep deprivation? And I haven't done these experiments. Other people have done those experiments and have observed that older people then their performance is less affected uh, than the performance of younger people. So that's another indication that older people need less sleep and are more resilient with respect to the negative effects of insufficient sleep.
1: Uh, that's very, very interesting. That's, I mean, I must admit, I'd have thought the opposite would have been the case. That's fascinating to hear that older people can, can, can manage an all-nighter better than, than a younger person.
2: Certainly, on the on the measures that were being used in those experiments, uh, that is true, and that has been reported uh, by a number of laboratories.
1: Now, you, you've you've done research on dementia and sleep, so let's bring that into the equation now. So we'll be talking generally about more elderly people, and let's say they develop dementia. What does that do to their sleep patterns?
2: The association between dementia and sleep is certainly. of of interest um, and now being investigated by laboratories um, around the world. Um, The first piece of information is that sleep disturbances and sleep disorders are a risk factor for dementia. Uh, Both very short sleep and very long sleep are associated with increased risk for uh, developing dementia. There are certain aspects of sleep that are predicted uh, of predictive of uh, incident dementia uh, in particular having less REM sleep is a predictor or is a risk factor for cognitive um, decline uh, and I probably uh, I definitely need to mention here sleep apnea uh, again so if people suffer from sleep apnea that is also a risk factor for dementia so. Uh, These data suggest uh, that there is somehow a causal relationship between disturbed sleep and developing cognitive deficits. What the underlying mechanisms are um, is to the larger extent uh, unclear, but several hypotheses um, have been proposed. By the time people become demented and people are living with dementia, their sleep is also disturbed. And there is a variety of sleep disturbances. Uh, One uh, common aspect of those sleep disturbances is that people wake up frequently in the middle of the night uh, and may wander around the house. So it's not just waking up to go to the bathroom, uh, but it is uh, much more. Another common observation is that people with dementia may spend very long periods in bed during the night. They may not sleep continuously during this long period, uh, but in terms of uh, hours spent in bed, that is certainly increased compared to cognitively intact older uh, people. And then there are the excessive daytime naps, the very long daytime naps and the daytime sleepiness, um, which is also a common feature uh, in advanced dementia. So the sleep-wake system Uh, becomes dysregulated, the sleep-wake cycle um, becomes fragmented. Of course, this may be a consequence of changes in brain structures that are affected by dementia, and these brain structures may normally generate a normal sleep-wake pattern. Um, And from that perspective, it's not so surprising that sleep, just as cognition, becomes disrupted um, in dementia.
1: And just spooling back a bit, before we talked about dementia, uh, there's one thing you mentioned I meant to pick up on, which was sleep in the day. Because I think quite a few people, maybe, uh, you you tell me if I'm wrong about this, just in their normal lives as they get older, tend to nap in the afternoon a bit, after lunch maybe. Is that, I think from what you were saying earlier, that's not an altogether good thing. It'd be better to stay awake. So
2: napping during the daytime, and whether this is the most natural thing to do, Uh, whether it's more common in uh, aging uh, can be discussed from various angles. Let's start with the siesta. If we are in Mediterranean countries, uh, people will talk about the siesta culture. And from that conclude that it is natural to take a nap in the afternoon. We need to realize that in those cultures, um, environmental temperatures are very high during the daytime and in particular, in the afternoon uh, and that certainly that in rural cultures where people had to work on the fields uh, during the summer, it probably wasn't very pleasant to be out there when the outside temperature is 35 degrees. We will see what happens with global uh, warming. A natural thing to do then is indeed to avoid the, the warm temperatures in the afternoon go inside and take a, a nap what else to do we see that in those cultures a lot of activities then take place in the cooler evening hours and that bedtimes are much later the, the siesta isn't common uh, in um, those countries where the environmental temperatures are lower so i don't believe that taking a nap in the afternoon is necessarily a biological phenomenon so what about aging? Do we nap more with aging? Uh, one of the reasons we may observe more naps in aging is that many older people, of course, are retired and don't have to necessarily work their office hours. Um, and that's why sometimes we may see more naps in uh, older people. So it is, to some extent, probably related to uh, changes in uh social constraints if if you want to Um, when people start taking very long naps during the day uh, and we look at the epidemiology then in general that is associated with adverse health outcomes so it certainly isn't a sign of health uh, when people take two hour naps um, in the afternoon
1: right now i'd just like to know a little bit about how you got interested. I mean, it's such a fascinating topic. Uh, and yet, I don't know when serious scientific research on it started, maybe towards the beginning of your career. Would that be right? How how did you get into this?
2: I studied biology at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Uh, and um, at the University of Groningen, there was a, a, a lecturer, Sergei Daan. And, and Sergei Daan uh, was a chronobiologist and, and he had trained with some of the founding fathers of modern chronobiology, uh, Jürgen Aschoff in in Germany and Colin Pittendrick um, in the States. Uh, And and I took uh, a course of Serge Dan and I was fascinated um, by biological rhythms. Uh, It had nothing to do or very little to do with sleep. It was all about biological rhythms in animals and in plants. And one of the reasons I was very much interested in it because... I like the fact that biological phenomena could be described by, you know, using a concept derived from physics or oscillator theory, and that you could use words like entrainment or phase response curves or intrinsic frequency. So I did this course and then uh, after I uh, graduated, um, he was awarded uh, a, a grant to, to test a model of sleep regulation. And that model of sleep regulation was called the two-process model of sleep regulation. And that model was developed by him, Sergei Daan, but in particular with Alex Borbe. Alex Borbe is a famous sleep researcher in in Switzerland. And and they had developed uh, that mathematical model together with a physicist. uh, And the Dutch science organization said, okay, here you have a PhD studentship so, you can test that model. Um, and I was selected to be that PhD student and was supervised by the biologist, Sergei Dan, a physicist, Domin Biersma, and a psychiatrist, uh, Rudy van den Hof-Taker. Um And you may say a psychiatrist. There's a lot of interest in sleep, sleep disturbances, and sleep abnormalities uh, in psychiatry, because in mental health conditions, sleep is often. Uh, disturbed. So this is how I got into sleep and circadian rhythms. And that was back in 1983. And I guess we are here now 38 years later. um, And I'm still doing the same thing.
1: Yeah. And and you mentioned a grant early on then. And, you know, all academics now are besieged by uh, people telling them they need to get grants. And it just occurred to me that your research is so relevant to the real world. I mean, there must be so many Companies and militaries and all the rest of it who need to understand sleep. I, I mean, I, th- I think you've got a big grant, or I don't know, it was big, a grant from the Air, US Air Force because they need to know how long pilots can fly for, right?
2: Well, um, the US Air Force is is one funding organization very much interested in sleep, circadian rhythms, and fatigue. One wouldn't like to see pilots fall asleep. Um, in the cockpit, and especially if these pilots have to fly through various time zones, uh, fly at night, don't get enough sleep. Uh, And so yes, indeed, we have been working with the US Air Force, we've also been working with the National Aeronautics and Space uh, Administration, um, looking at sleep in in astronauts, Uh, obviously pharmaceutical companies are interested in developing. Um, new compounds, new hypnotics to to improve sleep or new compounds to to improve uh, waking function or compounds that can change the timing of those uh, circadian rhythms. And sleep and circadian rhythms are very relevant, especially in a 24-7 society where approximately 20% of the workforce um, is in shift work, which obviously requires you to be awake at night and sleep um, during day, so the so the relevance of sleep wake research and circadian rhythm research to society is 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 pretty obvious. It's it's interesting to see that you know in, in in the course of my career, I've seen a growing interest, not necessarily from those companies and organizations, although that has happened to some extent as well, including the government but the interest in the in the science community the interest in the neuroscience community in sleep has uh, increased tremendously and uh, neuroscientists wonder you know what is why why do we actually have to sleep why does the brain have to go to that state and what is happening um during that state and um there, there is a little bit of of a mystery still there and it's it's very rewarding to see that now Neuroscientists at all uh, levels, from the behavioral neuroscientist to the molecular neuroscientist to the maybe theoretical neuroscientist, sleep is a, a credible subject for scientific study.
1: And, and can you tell us about one one claim anyway about the importance of sleep research, research into sleep in relation to the Falklands? Didn't weren't some quite bold claims made about that the, the military campaign? <laughs> And uh, with Britain and the Argentina.
2: I I have been told stories without uh, naming uh, names that a sleep researcher involved there gave the advice about which hypnotic to take at which time uh, when uh, the troops were on their way to the Falklands uh, and to to best overcome the effects of uh, jet lag and different time zones, etc. And maybe this particular sleep researcher was taking some probably well-deserved credit uh, and was demonstrating the, the, the practical importance of managing um, sleep. And, and in a way, that is what it's about. How can we manage our sleep patterns uh, under conditions in, in which it may not be so easy to sleep? Um, and you know, the, the battlefield is one, so sort of situation, but shift work is another situation. Uh, and of course, there are many parents of very young children who will say having a baby is probably the most challenging situation in terms of managing your sleep patterns.
1: Yes. I was just, I was in a cafe this morning, watching a young couple with a baby. They looked absolutely exhausted. So I, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, when, um, you, look back, can I ask you, at your career, 38 years, uh, it's a long, long time, and you've, when reading your biography, you've done you know, a lot of different areas of research in this. What, What is, as you look back at your career, the most surprising thing you've discovered? What, when you started 38 years ago, did you not expect that you'd have uh, become aware of? One
2: of the most surprising findings was about how the, that circadian clock regulates sleep-wake timing. Um, If you were to ask people, how do you think a clock regulates sleep timing? You would probably say, well, that biological clock acts as an alarm clock. It wakes you up in the morning by giving some kind of strong wake-up signal. And then at the end of the day, it probably gives you a very strong, please go to sleep signal. It, it turns out that that's not the case at all. actually, if if you measure the signal coming from the biological clock, the signal that drives wakefulness, that signal is strongest in the evening hours. From a biological clock p- perspective, we are most awake uh, in the evening. if If you measure the circadian drive for sleep, that actually turns out to be strongest, at approximately six o'clock in the morning, just before we wake up. And you you may wonder, you know, why is that? That sounds quite paradoxical. When you come to think about it, uh, it may be as follows that of course, your tendency to go to sleep will increase if you are awake longer and longer, in the same way as you're becoming more hungry. If you have been fasting for longer and longer. So there must be some kind of a signal that keeps you awake. And if you want to stay awake for 16 hours, and it makes sense that that signal becomes stronger as, as the wake duration or the day progresses. And that's why we think there is this strong circadian signal in the evening, which is a very robust uh, finding. Um, and the word data in the literature that, that hinted at that, but people couldn't understand it. It was too paradoxical. And I think to, to elucidate that aspect of how the clock regulates sleep-wake timing uh, was maybe one of the most surprising things I found. I can, there were other surprising things. Some of them were maybe more trivial. I, I can give you the example that if, if people ask you, what's this, the, the largest effect or the strongest effect of not getting enough sleep? How does it change your brain or your behavior? The answer I'm going to give you is the largest effect is on sleepiness. If you don't get enough sleep, the first thing you will notice is you are sleepy. People start laughing and would say, well, what's that? Isn't it true that your executive function or your memory uh, is impaired? We and others have looked at that in great detail, but nope. The largest effect is on something as simple as sleepiness. That's a useful piece of information because when somebody asks me, doctor, how do I know whether I get enough sleep? I say, well, are you sleepy during the day? Yes or no. If you are sleepy during the day, you may not get enough sleep. If you're not sleepy during the day, then I think you're doing fine.
1: And when you look ahead, At the future of this field where do you think the important work lies what are the what are the the front lines of this research
2: there are probably two front lines one front line is is to think about sleep as a whole body phenomenon it is not just the brain it is also the body it's it's the heart it's the liver it's the pancreas it's your muscles Um, and one of the front lines will be to understand how rhythmic functions in all of those parts of the body, both the brain um, and and the rest are coordinated and, and how that coordination will contribute to restful um, sleep. And obviously, circadian rhythms and circadian clocks are present uh, everywhere uh, in the body uh, do play an important role in that synchronization and that coordination between the brain uh, and the body. And, and understanding that integration, I think, is going to be one of the, 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 the front lines in, for understanding the contribution of health and the contribution of temporal organization of physiology um, to health and um, data science and mathematical modeling and all kinds of sophisticated... Analysis techniques to describe dynamics will probably play a very important uh, role there, especially since since we know that those rhythms and these effects of sleep extend, you know, from the level of gene expression all up to the to the level of physiology um, and uh, behavior. So so the the multi-level analysis of time and rhythmicity is is going to be an important um, front line. The other front line will probably be in the area of sleep enhancement. Can we come up with interventions that will truly improve sleep? We have interventions that can make us fall asleep like hypnotics, but I don't think that those interventions really enhance the power uh, of sleep. But we're probably going to see techniques Um, that can interfere with brain oscillations, that can interfere with specific brain structures implicated in the generation uh, of sleep. And those interventions uh, will probably ultimately lead to to more powerful um, sleep in, for example, aging, where where sleep may be less uh, powerful. And by enhancing sleep, uh, we may be able to counteract some of the the effects of aging, for example, which may be mediated by changes in sleep.
1: Gosh, well, that's a, that's a very big suggestion, isn't it, that you could, um, you could actually affect the aging process?
2: Uh, yeah, of, yes, of course, this is for now all speculation, uh, but it's certainly true that cross-sectional, if you look at indicators of aging uh, and you look at indicators of sleep, uh, there are clear associations.
1: Well, Professor, it's been very interesting indeed, and I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you.
2: Thank you.